and welcome everybody and thank you for tuning in and for those of you on uh, YouTube, uh, hello from uh, me again and I'm super excited about uh, today's guest. I have um, Peter Dorrington from uh, Exemplify and I bumped into Peter on um, LinkedIn um, where uh, a friend and ally, uh, Rob Coyne from um, Thunderhead, shared a post around uh, the voice of the customer, customer experience, journey or orchestration, which really caught my <clears throat> caught my eye. And there was actually, and I need to go to my other screen, uh, a quote from Aldous Huxley, which Peter shared. And I think we're going to dive into this. Experience is not what happens to you. It's how you interpret what happens to you, which <clears throat> really got me thinking around, okay, the world, the crazy world that we're in, in terms of everything's um, moving to digital, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, Peter, over to you. What is, uh, who, well, introduce yourself, um, exemplify what you do, and then let's see where this takes us. Yes, thank you very much, Alex. So, my name is Peter, and I'm the founder of Exemplify Consulting. And the XM stands for Experience Management. Now, Experience Management is the intersection of customer experience, and we'll talk quite a bit about that today, um, employee experience, um, which is vital in delivering good customer experience, and partner experience, which is the business-to-business -business equivalent of customer experience, but goes right along the supply chain, everything from your inbound goods and raw materials to the way that you distribute and sell your finished goods and services. Um, and what I really focus on is the marriage of data uh, and science, so all of the quant stuff, who, what, where, how much, and so on, and behavioral science, um, which is the why. And when you combine those things to do, what you get is in remarkable insights into what people really care about and why, how that will influence their next decision, and then what we as businesses could do about that. Um, so that's really brought me into some quite interesting work about specifically customer experience, particularly because a lot of organizations focus on what they're doing. So they have this kind of inside out view, particularly over the last few months when we've been rapidly transitioning to digital or remote working or virtualization. But of course, the true arbiter about whether your customer experience strategy is working or not is not us. It's the customer and it's about you know, really getting a good understanding of is our message and strategy working? Is it landing in the way that we'd hoped? And is it driving measurable business output? Something which I think is going to be a lot more important over the next few months as we come out of lockdown. I think that's a fascinating, that's a fascinating kind of uh, point because if you can understand the why, people are doing some, surely that's, that's answering the $64 million question, because once you've understood that, you can then drive better sales, marketing, content strategy, which is, dare I use the word, almost bespoke to your, your target audience that you want to do the right thing versus doing the, the wrong thing based on however you, you market or sell to them. Yeah, it is. And I, I first started thinking about this a really long time ago, actually. So when um, Don Peppers and Martha Rogers were writing about one-to-one -one marketing, um, at that time, realistically, it was always one-to-some, with mm -hmm. some being the smallest economic group you could service, but in a way that felt that it was individual. Well, now we've got the technology which really does allow us to get to one-to-one -one personalization. So everything about the way that we choose content or tone of voice or the way that we interact with customers 
should be highly personalized. And it is this thing that, um, you know, if we offer generic uh, journeys, generic experiences, particularly in those industries which are now seen as commodities, so you know, retail, retail financial services, things like insurance, where often the customers say, I don't even know how to tell you people apart. Yeah. That's where the experience starts to become important. It doesn't have to be incredibly complicated and confusing, but definitely why is important. And, and, and the ultimate question is this, why do apparently similar people behave differently when we face them with the same experience? Why do some people seem to like it and other people seem to dislike it or go against it? And, and that's what we need to get to. We need to get to that point of understanding at the individual level for Alex or for Peter, what is it that is actually driving our behavior? Because up until quite recently, all we could do was observe what people did. And we didn't really have the tools to get to why they do what they do. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important is in this age now where we have widespread social engagement, where we have a lot of people putting things out there, where we have digital and mobile platforms, we've got great sensing tools for beginning to get to some of this data which is giving us those insights. So we've always known about why. It's only relatively recently that we've had the tools that have been able to us, us to an, uh, an analyze those in the same way that we would analyze a purchasing pattern or a you know, shopping basket content. I think it's interesting that the, the one, the one to one messaging, because in terms of what, what we do, we always talk about, make sure your content is personalized, give some context as to why somebody should read your post on whatever the social media platform uh, is, your audience uh, dictates that. Yet the conversations I always have with, um, dare I say, kind of marketing or comms when they get very excited about, we've hit a hundred thousand followers on our corporate page on LinkedIn. I'm like, so what? or we've got 300,000 views on this YouTube video. And I'm like, so what? Where, where's the, the reaction to that, that somebody's then contacted you saying, I've seen that video, I've seen that post, I now want to have a business conversation with you. And time and time again, I get, I get back, we're not measured on that. It's just the volume of, of views. And my response is, well, okay, if it's, let's say 300,000 views, if it's 300,000 Russian bots, then <laughs> those 300,000 views are a complete and utter waste of time. And especially with you know, LinkedIn, let's take that from a, from a B2B perspective, the changes in the algorithm again, which happened um, a couple of weeks ago. But even before that, there was a big lack of understanding around if people aren't engaging with your corporate content from your corporate page, just because you've got 100,000 followers, probably only 20% of those followers, even if they're right, are actually seeing that content because everyone else isn't bothering liking or engaging with it. So the system's not going to bother serving it into their newsfeed because LinkedIn wants to have a personalized newsfeed for them to keep people on LinkedIn so LinkedIn can sell advertising space. I think there has to be, you know, there needs to be this shift that when we talk about one-to-one, -one, we genuinely mean one-to-one. -one. Yeah, and I, I think you've raised an interesting point and it's one that I've seen a lot when I've worked with organizations. There's, there has been a tendency for us to measure what's easy to measure rather than what's meaningful to measure. And again, some of that was because it was actually quite difficult to figure out what was meaningful. And some of those metrics you've talked through, like click-through rates or the number of views or impressions, are just another expression of the old numbers game that used to be part of direct mailing. If we just mail enough people, 
even a small response rate makes it economically viable. But there is a huge corollary to that. We live in a world now where people are getting much more resistant to being interrupted, you know, where we are tuning out all of this irrelevance. Um, so if we just keep going for the mass effect, it may be cheap and we may be able to measure it and we may be able to target people with those easy measures. You know, I want my campaign to have this number of impressions. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. You know, that's a vanity. It's much better to say, I would rather reach the one person who is genuinely interested and engaged in what I have to say than generate a click screen that I can uh, pat myself on the back and say, look how popular I am. Um, yeah, and there are plenty of businesses that have made very good money, even if they're not particularly popular, or they have chief executives who aren't popular because they offer good value that connects. Now, connection is, I think, something which is the raison d'etre behind the whole one-to-one -one marketing approach. When it feels like it's focused on you as an individual, when you feel that you have established a connection with a business, we're much more likely to get into not only making intent statements about I will recommend you or I hope I'll buy a product from you in the future, but actually go on and do it um, because it's one of the foundations of things like trust. Now, one of the areas of work that I've been engaged in over the last couple of years is looking at people's, uh, the drivers of behavior, particularly attitudes and emotions and how we feel. And let's be honest, right now, we're all feeling a bit confused about what's going on. In fact, I, I did an analysis of the UK and did an emotional outlook. And there were two big um, emotional indicators that came out of that and one financial. So I'll take the financial first. Money is going to be in short supply all round. You know, the government has spent a lot of money. Businesses have had to reinvest very quickly to retool for the new reality they find themselves in. And consumers have either been furloughed or they're not quite as sure that they're going to be earning as much as they did. At the same time, we're dealing with high levels of anxiety and uncertainty. And these are two things that people usually don't like. We don't like feeling afraid and we don't like feeling we don't know what's going to happen. The outcome of that is that a lot of decisions are going to be deferred until I feel more confident that I know what's going on. That's bad news for business. So what we have to do is reconnect with those consumers and address those things. So we have to get a platform where we are actually having, a, if you like, a, an overall message that's in the zeitgeist, which is we're on this road to recovery that we are going to heal. But we also have to get super relevant to individual customers and saying, we know where you are. We know what you're going through. Let me help you make that decision not by trying to nudge them into something that's not in their interest, but to help them overcome some of their own hesitancy born out of that uncertainty and fear, which is actually stopping people doing the things they need to do. And I've seen this with the National Health Service. People are not going to hospital with conditions which are life-threatening because they're afraid and they're not sure or they don't know that the hospital is open. And in fact, the NHS is now talking about this and we have to get people to come back. We have to get them to present. If they're having a heart attack, the last thing they need to do is stay at home and say, well, it's probably worse if I get coronavirus. It's not. Go and get treatment. Yeah. So businesses say at this point, we, we need to become much more relevant. We need to reconnect in a way where we're establishing those long-term relationships for what um, Richard Tabakawala said was the new strange. Mm -hmm. We've not been here before. 
Yeah, yeah. We think we have. We think it has some similarities to things that happened in the past. But the global financial crisis, that was just an economic phenomenon. It, you know, people didn't literally just die of the global financial crisis. It's certainly not as direct result. Even Spanish flu, you know, the coronavirus is not specifically like flu at all. Um, so we are in this strange world. Now, we as businesses and those that succeed are the ones that are going to be able to respond most quickly and be agile in pivoting towards the need of their customers, as well as being able to service their own operational realities. And I mean, that sounds, I mean, that's a you know, big ask. You know, we touched on you know, the, the fear, the anxiety, the uh, deferring decisions is kind of the, the, the chicken and the egg situation. And I was talking earlier before we were, were recording, you are talking around the, you know, the, the article I read was kind of geared towards retail and consumers, you and I going, you know, to buy something from a shop or online and Amazon's reprogrammed the way that the experience should be. I can do it in two clicks and it works and it comes to my door. Why does, why does this website not work? You know, in our world, there's big B2B, um, big B2B business. I remember being at a conference, uh, remember those, um, a couple of years ago at one of the big four, and um, they had a, a retail kind of specialist touching on similar things that we're talking around, around thinking about the customer experience and the customer journey and da, da, da. And this individual at the back of the room stood up and went, well, that's all well and good, but I run a multi-billion-pound you know, SaaS business, and our sales cycles are two years long. And that's just not how our clients buy. So how can business, sort of B2, you know, B2B business, translate that into their world? Because I truly believe at the end of the day, and I, I do use this in examples when working with clients, going, you know, I do a lot of work with law firms, professional services. Let's take law firms as an example. You market to general counsel. One minute they're in their Ocado, Deliveroo, Amazon app and it works seamlessly the next minute to your point they get a crappy piece of interruptive email bland marketing which maybe they don't want or there's a generic post on LinkedIn which you blend through or even if they click on that it doesn't render properly on the on the mobile device so that you talked about you know the, the journey experience not even the why but the journey itself they start to feel frustrated and therefore they feel frustrated towards the brand and the, and the individual, but this feels like this is, you know, this is still light years away for B2B. Um, or you, you, know, you talked about the, the, the partner um, side of things to get their head around this. So what are you seeing organizations doing that kind of fit that model? What can they start to think about? Okay, so as, as you say, that's a really big subject, but let, let's unpack some of that. So the first um, point I'd like to make is that pretty much all the businesses I've ever dealt with are made up of people. Mm -hmm. So the technology and the processes and the systems are definitely there. That's part of the operational reality, but they're run by people for people in mm -hmm. one guise or another. Um, yet they have stakeholders they need to meet. So people are a weird mix of logic and irrationality. You know, we like to think we're clever. We like to think we're logical. Reality is we're not. You know, there's a lot that goes on subconsciously we're not even aware of, but has a direct influence on the things that we do. The same is true of business. If anything, businesses tend to be a little bit more blind to this about themselves. So businesses put in place these processes and they say that they're logical and we make rational decisions and we will get three vendors into competitive bid against a uh, schedule of requirements perhaps in a, 
an RFP. But we've all had experiences where when you get great relationships with a business, people have said, well, you know, I, I can help you. I'll coach you through this process. You know, they know how to work the system. But more importantly, and actually more fundamentally, most um, executive teams have a corporate responsibility for financial performance. I mean, that's what the business exists for, to deliver value to the stakeholders, um, mm -hmm. shareholders of its publicly traded. Okay, so they all have that. They also all individually have their own functional or operational needs. So the CFO will have one area of focus, the CMO will have another area of focus, head of logistics and distribution has another area of focus, and so on. So one of the things that we need to do uh, if we're in the business-to-business -business world is firstly identify, well, what is the decision-making process that these businesses follow? But more importantly, how can we serve content which is relevant to each of those roles. So that not only do we say, hey, there's a great financial business case, um, and I've seen lots of really good business cases fail in the sales cycle because they just haven't got that corporate buy-in from the whole board. Mm -hmm. So we can use data, and we absolutely have. I mean, if you've ever had a discussion with a CFO and you haven't come armed with numbers and data, I'm willing to bet it's not gone well. <laughs> um, but they do... Um, they're usually very happy to invest as long as they know what the ROI is. Yeah. But when you've got a whole executive team saying, yeah, I know what's in it for us. I know what's in it for me and how you, what you're proposing impacts me. Then they too are in a world right now where they're facing uncertainty, where the business climate is looking difficult. Um, one thing that I'm absolutely convinced of at the moment is we're going through a big reset of our understanding what consumers find important which means many of these businesses are desperately trying to rebuild their customer insight data and the models out of that. So the executive teams find themselves, they're working in the dark in some places. Now, until recently, the last two, three months have been dominated by the operational headache of how do we virtualize, you know, that dash to digital that's been going on. Well, we're getting through that now. And now what's happening is businesses are waking up saying, well, we as a business need to be lean and efficient because we're not going to have a huge amount of money, um, particularly if our revenue stream is hit hard. Yeah. And we need to reconnect with consumers. So what Alex, you and I and others in our fields can be doing is helping those businesses navigate that by saying, you've the ability to um, get an understanding of what's important to customers, an understanding of what's important to your own employees and what's happening along your entire value chain or your supply chain and you can optimize that and you can make some pretty significant decisions, but don't do it solely on the basis of cost or solely on the basis of revenue. There, there are some very good things you can do in customer experience, which delight customers and bankrupt the company in the process or vice versa. You can go for the short term win yeah. and then you can turn off your customer base. Um, and in a market which is going to be depressed with low um, business confidence, yep. competition is going to be very keen. Everybody's going to be chasing the few economically active customers yeah. that are out there that are prepared to spend. So yeah, I, I think from your point of view, the partner experience piece is still about make good data-driven decisions, understand how you become relevant to your business customers. And they're just a special case of rather than having one point of view, they have this um, hesitate to use the word schizophrenic, but they have different dynamics going on. 
Yeah. And the more of those you can address, the more of those that you can satisfy, the easier it is for your business partner to make a decision and the easier it is for them to operationalize their investment and then become, recapture that relevance with their consumer. So I think it's a, the way that I deal with this to say is I don't have one journey, which I use in business to business. I say there are different journeys for each of those CXO roles, but they also have that common thread of fiduciary responsibility yeah. and business performance and the corporate decision-making that they make. But if I can tick off some of the big points in terms of their individual operational or functional responsibilities, that makes their decision a lot easier as well. And uh, we were, before we kind of went, um, I use the word live, it sounds very grand. Um, we were talking about their organizations have got, you know, that they can't really base it on the data pre-COVID because we are behaving in a completely different way to what we did when it was normal. Yeah. So I guess those organizations that were already were recording this, but again, based on you know, when I talk to companies and um, you talk to CMOs, you talk to sales directors, even a very basic level around, you know, intent and intent data. You know, if you get a thousand views on your post, you know, are they relevant views? Do you need premium to see who's actually company wise followers on the corporate page? Not everybody's seeing it because of the, the way the algorithm um, behaves. Oh, we're not recording things like website visits. Well, download Ghostery, which is you know one of these many ad blockers, and it will tell you how many tracking sites that you you've got on there. But where in the kind of the B two B the partner kind of space, what what sort of things should people be thinking about in terms of where do they even start to look at what sort of data they should be recording if they're not, or what questions should maybe the CFO I'm guessing be asking of the CMO, going right. What are we doing in this space? What are your team doing? How are we doing it? Yeah, um, you're full of very good questions. (laughs) So uh, let's take one of the things about how we make decisions. Um, So we all have this balance, say, of the rational and the irrational. And the we when we don't know, we tend to look to other people. So that wisdom of crowds thing. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how to make this decision. What did everybody else do? Those kind of things. The first of which I would say is that a lot of the data we currently hold about consumers, as you rightly point out, has been somewhat made obsolete by COVID-19. And let me give you a very specific example. Mm -hmm. At one point, it looked like we were one toilet roll from anarchy as a country. Okay. Now, pre-COVID-19, things that were influencing people's decision were quality of the product, the price, how... Um, available was it you know convenient can I just pick it up in my weekly shop because of what was going on at that time all of that went out the window and it was all driven by availability can I get anything that even remotely resembles toilet roll okay so so that was a transient state and now things are beginning to settle that has started to go back to something more approaching normal so there will always be some goods and services the essentials that we will typically the shoppers want to go and get And if you're in that kind of market, it's still going to be getting the right product on the shelf at the right time, Mm -hmm. uh, maintaining continuity of supply. But let's take a different one. The automotive sector has been absolutely crushed over the last month in terms of new car sales. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are one of those big discretionary spend items. So some people have to replace their car for one reason or another. It might have come to the end of the lease or it's been damaged or is no longer serviceable. So there will be some new car sales activities, but a lot of people will be seeing 
well, can I hang on to my existing car for another year? Can I put off making that big decision mm -hmm. till I'm more sure? So what that sector is going to have to do is look at, well, what is it that we can do that can help customers make a balanced decision of risk and benefit mm -hmm. on those decisions? And we've got to cut through all of the other competing voices. So there's no point trying to sell something that's a big discretionary item to somebody who is feeling deeply disturbed and uncertain about the future. Um, they just won't. They'll just defer. But there will be those borderline cases, mm -hmm. the people who could be subtly influenced, and it's for the right reasons to do that. Now, in order to understand which of those environments a consumer is in or a business partner is in, we have to identify what do they really care about right now. And a lot of that will be based upon understanding what they're saying and doing, particularly what they're saying. Um, because language is where we leak our behavior and our emotions. It's our early indicators. So people might be, um, when they're talking about a film and sharing it with other people, they will put in things about it's exciting or, you know, well, I got bored halfway through the middle. We use emotive language whenever we describe stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that's detectable. Um, and it's detectable on a whole range of channels, but where you really want to be is where the conversation is. So where are those unguide, um, unguarded conversations where people are really talking about what's important? Now, we could look at sentiment, and they do, and you can say, well, people's sentiment is positive or negative and trends, but it's very difficult to come out of that with a prediction about what they're likely to do. You know, unhappy people still buy, happy people may not necessarily be loyal. So we've got to get a little bit deeper than that, and it's that balancing act. Now, the good thing is that most businesses are aware of what they've done and to whom. So they've got an event stream that they can look at. That's their operational data. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can look at some of that experiential data, some of which can come through surveys. But if you really want to get under the hood, to use the automotive expression again, go to where they're using language, because that's where you'll start to see things. And you might have to strip a bit of bias out. Let's be honest. Um, for example... Uh, some social channels are used as the complaint channel. So people just go on there and rant about yes. something that's upsetting them. I understand that. But there are more than enough examples where you can get those deep insights. And so it's, if you can use the kinds of tools we have available now, like natural language processing, some of the intent and behavior data being married together, which is why I say what I'm interested in is when you combine data science, which tends to be about the quant stuff, and behavioral science, which tend to be about the qualitative nature of, of experience, that's when you get a better picture. Still not perfect, yeah. and we are in this transitionary period right now where we're settling into what the future will hold. Um, but strangely, quite a lot of it is actually predictive. You know, there, there are, um, in the behavioral economics, they call them cognitive biases. So we think we're being clever, um, but there are 150 something odd ways that we know that our logic lets us down and they're predictable. So if you've ever left the house um, and come home with two of something you never intended to buy one of when you left, yeah. that's probably as the result of a cognitive bias where you've thought you've got a great deal or there's yeah. some sense of urgency. It's not logical or rational, but it is behavioral. So um, I, I would say that a place that a lot of businesses um, need to engage in that conversation is go to where your customers are having that conversation. Start to use these platforms as sensing platforms, but also as re-engagement platforms. 
it's a great place to start putting things out there and people will begin to home in on saying, well, you, you don't just know about me. That is, you've got data about me. Mm-hmm. You're beginning to know me. So you'll yep. begin to know what I find important, what I think is you know, on the balance of probability, B is more important than A, at least at this time. Yeah. Um, I, I truly believe those organizations that can do that the most quickly and effectively in the next few months will be those that stay, steal market share from the others that are still trying to digest the operational headache of what's been going on for the last two to three months. And it's kind of fascinating, you know, talking about this because if basically what we're in very simple terms is go and talk to your clients and then listen and listen to what they've got, to, listen to what they've got to say. I remember, you know, doing a launching a client feedback program 10 plus years ago for a, for a law firm because it was the dumb thing. And at the end of the, and initially, you know, law firm partners would give you their best clients and you get, oh, they're amazing, they're brilliant, blah, 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 blah. And we we're like, okay, fine. And then it'd be like, well, you can't go and talk to that client, which would always raise, uh, raise alarm bells. But then you give the feedback back to the, to the lead partner. And actually, we ended up stopping it because it was more damaging because we were then being told, this is how I feel, this is what's not working, this is what you could do more of, this is what the competition are doing a better job of in just basic client delivery. Yeah, 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 that's fine. I'm just going to carry on. And you wouldn't act upon what you've been told wasn't working. And then three months later, the same problem would occur. And the client would go, well, hang on a second. I told you this three months ago to not do this. So why did you bother coming and wasting an hour of my time to have a conversation around all of this? And here we are today in, in 2020, still having this conversation about going and having that conversation, you know, go and talk to your customer base because in those social media channels where people just can, can play in some kind of big B2B, then you don't really do that because it's just not the nature of the beast. So maybe it is a survey or it is going and having that, um, that conversation. You've got, you know, voice technology like um, Gong is the one that springs to mind where certainly in what they're doing for sales coaching is they're recording sales conversations and they're starting to work out the high performing sales teams or salesperson, what are they saying or not saying mm. versus those that are poor performing and starting to coach according to that. So, you know, maybe flipping that for the technology out there um, uh, exists. It's just, I kind of find it, almost you know, depressingly funny that we're still having this conversation today about go and listen to your customers. Yeah. And, and oh gosh, it, I, so I have a love hate relationship with survey based instruments. <laughs> so, right, okay. Yeah. I, I do say that if you want to know how somebody feels, the worst thing you can do is directly ask survey. them how they're feeling because <laughs> they don't know how to answer. Uh, yeah. Most of us aren't that in touch with it. doesn't matter. I, there are a couple of things that go out of that. A lot of surveys are self-fulfilling prophecies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've seen too many organizations who use surveys so they can pat themselves on the back about how wonderful they are. Yeah. And at the same time, wonder why sales are falling away. Um, yeah. Because they use, they're using biased questioning techniques. They've made huge assumptions about what they think the customer yeah. finds important. So they're looking for validation rather than a true insight. Yeah. The listening thing is incredibly important. We as human beings know this. You know, we know that the best performing salespeople, the best performing marketers are not the ones that talk the most, unlike me, but they're the ones that listen best. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones that are actually genuinely listening to what their customers are saying. And out of that, they're beginning to tease. Okay, I can see what's important to this person. You know, they, they are um, more attracted to a particular way that we're formulating this solution than others. 
what's changed is that whilst human beings, at least for the foreseeable future, will always be the best mechanism to do that, you know, people are the best tools we have to understand other people, we can automate parts of that. Okay. So we're beginning to automate listening and um, get meaning out of those conversations. And it's coming not just from surveys and not just from operational data, but from those sources of narrative. And in a business-to-business -business context, one of the things that I get frustrated with is the way that contact centers are perceived as being cost centers, mm -hmm. particularly in the service world. They're a necessary evil to satisfy customers who are complaining or have challenges. And a few good ones have looked at, you know, well, that's great if we can turn a service into a sales opportunity. But what an amazing platform for listening. Yeah. But they don't typically get measured on that. They don't get typically tasked with give us feedback about you know, how we're perceived in our marketplace. What are we doing that is delighting our customers or irritating them? Mm -hmm. you know, and how could we really begin to build that in? And the point you raised about so many voice of the customer programs, we interrupt a customer, particularly good customers, by the way, and say, I'd like an hour of your time to go through the, you know, your experience. We write that all down and then they hear nothing about it. You know, they don't know what changed. So my advice has always been, if you're going to ask the question, explain why you're going to ask the question, what's going to happen to the answer, and when the uh, person being surveyed or interviewed will be told about what's going to change. Now, some organizations are actually quite good at that. They go back to the Voice of the Customer program and say, we're asking you because we're going to review it in three months' time, and then we will send out a newsletter telling you what we've decided we're going to work on. Not everything gets um, picked or, or selected, particularly when you've got a limit to your budget. But customers like that. They say, actually, okay, maybe this time it wasn't my feature request that got built in, but I can see that this company is genuinely trying to tr change and to address things that are important to us. But at the moment, I think that you know, there is this huge danger that we face that the CFO for most commercial businesses over the next few months is going to be looking to bring the, the ax down on cost. Yeah. So they're going to be looking, where can we cut costs? It must be tempting to look at something like a voice of the customer program or a, you know, a CX program and say, well, unless you can make a really good case about why this is important and how it relates to the bottom line, I think it's a nice to have, but we can't afford nice to have right now. Um, so we've got to get a lot better at demonstrating how the way in which we are servicing customers is translating into those things that the business really cares about. And for most organizations, at the end of the day, it's money. Even if you're a charity, you need money to pay wages, to pay the bills, to invest or to actually um, support people. Um, but it isn't, as I say, the only factor. You know, yes, you've got to make a good business case based around the financials, but you've also got to make a great business case about how we're not going to add to the headaches of the company, how you know, perhaps for the COO, yeah. a new sensing program for voice of the customers is going to be an early warning system to tell us whether some of the things we've done in a rush are actually having some unintended consequences. And if we can head those off before they become a crisis, that has an enormous impact on our reputation as a business and the way that we're perceived, which is often then the byproduct is how that translates into things like customer satisfaction scores, yeah. which isn't actually directly linked to the business outcome. It's, it's a, almost an end in itself. It's a byproduct of 
the things that drive satisfaction, some of those drive business outcomes, but there are other things that drive business outcomes that have no impact on satisfaction. Yeah. Um, so that blend of the two enables us as in a business to business or a business to business to consumer world to make smarter decisions and get the best um, optimal result from our investment. And CX is a good investment and it will continue to be but not if all you're trying to do is get a particular number you can put up on dashboard somewhere and say, look how wonderful we are. Yeah, indeed. And customer satisfaction is always, you know, like MPS scores. It's a moment in time. They could be happy tomorrow and the next day you piss them off and now they're not happy, but you don't, you don't know that. But it's interesting in terms of the, the way you look at the CFO coming down on, you know, is, is this spend necessary? And taking the example of the, the automotive industry and the, the, you know, a car is, is discretionary spend. We're working with a big SaaS player at the moment. And they've had some deals that, you know, they're two-year sales cycles, you know, quarter million dollar, you know, average deal size. And they've had some com- interesting conversations. They, saw some, they thought something was nailed down. And it's literally gone to the CEO. And the CEO said no because of everything that you said. And they said that's not in our playbook. So inversely, if... You're the, if you sell big systems, which are long sales cycles that cost a lot of money, you could also argue to the CFO, well, by leveraging this, we can actually, to your, I think your earlier, earlier point, if we get this right now, we can steal market share, we can take market share, because we'll have a better understanding of our audience, a better understanding of our customers, and they can drive a better overall CX. And your, your point around the borderline people, where if we're able to get a sense of that, we know where we can actually direct more effective marketing spend rather than just turning the tap off um, completely. Yeah, and I think, um, well, the CMO and the Chief Revenue Officer or Sales Officer right now are looking about new paths to growth or recovery. So, you know, we, so many industries have taken a hit financially over the last couple of uh, months and it's going to continue for a while you know the market is not i i disagree with people think we're going to have some kind of like v-shaped bounce back i don't think it's going to look like that um because we're not going to bounce back to what we had before it will bounce back to something different but you know that connection with our customers whether they be small businesses large businesses those long sales cycle you know consumers that there are a couple of things that we have to do. Firstly, we have to demonstrate value, not just in monetary terms, but how it meets other of their needs. And it's, it's a, almost like um, that whole column fodder idea of the more boxes we can tick for our customers, the more comfortable they make that they're making a good decision. But there's another factor, which is the time one. You know, what we need to do is say, in a world where there's a great temptation to defer any expense, whether you're a business or a consumer, until you've got a better understanding of what's going on, and that understanding will not crystallize for some time, what we can do is show how um, investments now, like you say, could help us secure market share or actually could stop us hemorrhaging market share, which could be a real interesting conversation to have because it may be that we actually need to spend more in a particular area in order to protect what we have and provide the platform upon which we build. So one of the things that was interesting in the dash to digital was that it's often seen as a much lower cost by a business to serve its customers. Um, so that would look like a great thing. You know, we get customers to self-service. You know, we can actually reduce the amount of investment. We need to have a big infrastructure to do that. Um, 
And you know, we, we've also had to make a big investment in a hurry because we needed to virtualize our um, industry. But it's not great for everything. And it ceilings, it plateaus out because there are some things like a more human approach, the way we engage, where there are times when an app is brilliant. If I want to change my password on a, an account, I don't need to talk to a human being about that. But if I'm confused and upset and I'm not sure what on earth I'm supposed to do, that's probably when I do need to talk to a human being. And there's no way you can replicate that in a digital experience. So navigating as a business about which investments give us most agility and flexibility in a period where things are still settling into whatever the new normal will look like, it may be better to say, let's make um, a considered investment case now based upon a range of benefits, one of which may be, yeah, it might improve customer satisfaction, um, or it might do something which I saw in some data which was counterintuitive. The best audience was not taking people who felt neutral and trying to make them happy, because we spent a lot of money trying to do it for a negligible effect on things like how much they spent and their loyalty. In fact, the best group in that particular client were people who were, um, already feeling negative about the organization and we moved them closer to just feeling neutral and that was relatively cheap to do and had a big impact yeah now that's not the kind of thing that say feels intuitive to organizations but you can only do it when you start to develop these insights and you're engaged in that conversation with your customers so the two-year sales cycle thing I, I absolutely get it but I think a lot of the digital platforms would have said well that's typical of us and suddenly we found ourselves we couldn't get product out the door fast enough as yep. people transition into a new operational world. Well, this reset, I think there's some areas where you can clearly see they're going to have to be radical and fast moving changes. One of which is understanding your new marketplace and your new customers, which may mean rewriting your entire segmentation model because yep. of the change in dynamic of your customers. Mm -hmm. Having the operational wherewithal to then act upon that because if you're not, your competition will be, um, where you'd say you're gonna need a mixture of insight and operations and feedback. Um, and then say some of those might actually be, well, we've made some big bets on the basis of some assumptions and some hopes about where we thought it was going to be or just simple necessity. Yeah. And we now need to be in a position where we can turn some of the, it may have not have been the best decision, but we need to make it the best decision. I don't think a lot of people are going to unpick their digital strategies now, certainly not in the short term, yeah. but they may have to do some optimization and tuning on the basis of that. But my view, and you'd expect this from somebody who's got a data science background as a behavioral background as well, is the more that we can know and find out quickly and efficiently that we can translate into action, the better. I don't like making decisions in the blind. I'm pretty sure most people don't. Yeah. So um, our ability to say whether it's a big multinational or an individual consumer to help them make the right decision for the right reasons, that's what gives us a competitive edge in this new world. And I think that is a, and we could go on for hours on this, but I think that is a brilliant place to, um, uh, to end upon. Um, thank you so much for your, your insight and your, your time on this. I really do appreciate it because until two weeks ago, you and I didn't know each other existed. And that's the beauty of kind of social bringing these, uh, uh, these conversations uh, together. Where can people 
after hearing this find you, reach out to you? What's the best place to, uh, to contact you? Well, um, the website is a great place to start. I publish everything there, um, yeah. and there are contact details. You can even book meetings directly through that. So Perfect. exemplify, that's xmplify.co.uk. It's above my head. Mm-hmm. Um, that says a mechanism to get there. I do publish a lot into the social networks, and I use articles out there. I, I love sharing experiences, and I love hearing other people's experiences. Fantastic. I, like everybody else at the moment, although I'm a bit long in the tooth, I think, and if I had hair, it would be grey. I'm still learning. I think we all need to be learning at the moment. <laughs> but you know, it's that engagement. Um, I'm passionate about uh, engaging with clients and other organisations as well. Fantastic. I'll put links to your uh, your LinkedIn profile on the website at the bottom of um, uh, the video for those that are watching and um, for those that are listening. You know what to what to do. And with that in mind, uh, to my listeners and to my viewers, thank you very much for uh, taking the time out to listen to this. I hope you found it useful, insightful. As Peter said, I hope you learned something new. I think this is going to be absolutely, not I think, I believe, or even I know this is going to be absolutely critical for the uh, uh, for the foreseeable and um, uh, on onwards. But um, Peter, thank you very much. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me along. And uh, everybody uh, tune in next week when I'll have another guest. But uh, until now, everyone keep safe and um, uh, I'll see you online somewhere. Thank you.